I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is fish jelly. Mmm. <laughs> like it's tasty? Yeah, well, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Like something you'd buy in the, the uh, kosher section of the grocery store. Mmm. <laughs> Happy Saturday. Yeah, it's uh, an odd recording hour. Um, yeah, it's pretty late in the evening. <clears throat> well, late for me, like 9.15. My brain's ready to turn off, so. What? Yeah, I mean, this is relaxation hour. Really? Yeah. Oh, I was. You're usually up so late. I would think that. Well, by relaxing for me, I mean like I'm being creative and writing and thinking about things in my own little bubble and world and not having to pay attention or stay on track. Interesting. <laughs> so what's new? What happened this week? Ah, oh, what did happen this week? Uh, vaxxed or masked per uh, Joe Biden? That's uh, that right. Was a big deal item this week. That's um, right. Did you record any notable deaths? No, I didn't. I, I don't think I saw any uh, headlines. No. I'm, a, I'm a headline grabber, so I don't know. Oh. The only headline that caught my attention recently was there is a student in China. Actually, there are a group of students in China, and I don't have all the details in front of me, but they... Um, they found a loophole through the KFC app. Uh-huh. So, like, they were... Essentially, they stole the equivalent of 31000 U.S. dollars in free chicken. Because they... Wait, like, they have the physical chicken? They, they... There was a glitch in the app where a person could enter the voucher and then they could switch to a different app that is not a platform we use here in the United States, but it, it's kind of like how you can use like app, like your iPhone to pay for things through like, or, or send money through iMessage or something like that. I'm not fully familiar on that. However, okay. the, um, they found a loophole and started stealing chicken. <laughs> okay. And it, I believe it, there were three of them. Anyway, the total was like 31,000 US dollars and the one I know was sentenced to like two and a half years in prison for oh. stealing this chicken. I mean, <laughs> that, uh, not the chicken chain I'd steal from, but... Um, anyway, that was a stupid story. That, rem that reminds me of uh, getting that chicken at Ralph's that one time and this real big girl came up and told me that I shouldn't buy it because it was bulbous. Oh yeah, because it was pumped full of hormones. Like... With all the things I put in my body, this chicken is the least of my worries. But anyway, um, so something cool that happened was, I think like a little over a month ago, um, someone who watches our YouTube videos <clears throat> reached out asking if we would help him propose to his longtime girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to name names in the event they don't, they, they wouldn't like that. But we were happy to assist. Mm -hmm. So we made a video, starting it like we were going to start our usual YouTube videos, mm -hmm. but then we said we had a, a special message and basically said that this person wanted to ask for this other person's hand in marriage, and we received an update, I believe on Monday, mm -hmm. saying that she said yes. Mm -hmm. So that was exciting. It was actually touching because they shared not only photos, but a video of the actual proposal. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I felt very touched and honored. You were teary-eyed, well, <laughs> which was very sweet. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an emotional um, 
uh, you know, watching anybody be authentically emotional, I think, is, is moving. And that, you know, my dumbass was <laughs> somehow somehow involved. Like, it, it felt, it was touching, yeah. Yeah, never did I think or would I have thought that someone would. I don't, I still can't believe people listen to our podcast or watch our videos. But um, the fact that someone would ask for help <clears throat> to do something so special was... A lovely surprise, and we yes. were happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to share a story. I have so many interesting... Well, I, I can't say my stories are interesting, but I'm told that I have a lot of interesting stories related to a previous life of mine. Um, oh, <clears throat> working in VIP services in Las Vegas, as well as being a hairstylist. Mm-hmm. So I sort of... I, I usually don't talk about these things in our YouTube videos, but I spit it out in the... The woman, excuse me, the woman in the window video Mm -hmm. that I had done Isla Fisher's hair. So I thought maybe I'll start to share those because as my brain starts to atrophy, I'll probably forget all of these things. Uh, But um, (laughs) I'm surprised you remember them now. Right. Yes. Um, So the story with Isla Fisher is I did her hair. And this is around the time of Great Gatsby's. This has been 2013. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I was assigned to do her hair. I didn't know who she was. And I saw her name and it didn't ring. It, it, it's important to the story that I saw her name, mm-hmm. but um, I, it didn't register who I thought she was. So I started doing her hair and I asked her, she had like an inspo photo. So I started doing her hair and it, increasingly she becomes a little more like fidgety mm-hmm. and so, so straight out says like, do I know who she is? Because she starts like, um, talking about like a photo shoot and an interview and a movie and, you know, dropping a lot of things that normally would get people to react, but I just wasn't picking up what she was putting down. So she says, do you know who I am? And my dumbass, with my terrible memory, knowing that I had just read this lady's name like 20 minutes prior. Oh my God. I was trying to put two and two together, like, oh, she's doing an interview for a movie, she's a redhead white lady, and I said Amy Adams, and she was not happy. Are there redhead black ladies? Uh, I guess not. <laughs> well, no, yeah, there are. There okay, are. Okay. Yeah. Um, like, nat- like biological. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are. Uh, Red Fox. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I know that's a lame go-to reference, but yeah, he had red hair. Yeah, I, I can visualize people I've met, black people I've met with black red hair. Black Irish. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, she was not happy. So in her bag, she had an oversized bag and started pulling out magazines that she was in and was like showing me. Just... And then it didn't register until she showed me a magazine with her husband on the cover. And she's married to Sasha Baron Cohen mm-hmm. that I... I still didn't know who she was, but I knew her husband. Which now you do. But now I do. Mm-hmm. So every time I see Amy Adams, I think about that. Oh, God. Anyway, that was a Which, story. as we brought up in that review, or as I brought up in that review, that's why Tom Ford cast them together in uh, Nocturnal Animals. Yes. Which you haven't seen, right? Uh, I don't think so, no. Oh, it's worth um, a watch. So we have, uh, we're going to run down some of our, some of the things we watched this week. I'll that, start that, um, that, that we didn't cover on the YouTube channel. So there's a new Netflix show called The Upshaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the creators is Wanda Sykes. It stars Wanda Sykes, Kim Fields, and Mike Epps. Mm-hmm. 
and um, I have to, I, I finished the entire season. There are only, I believe, seven episodes or eight, but I really enjoyed it. I would be curious to know what other people think because it does feel, it has a very specific audience. Um, sure. Because I watched an interview with Mike Epps talking about how he wanted a show that sort of had a Norman Lear vibe. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to pay homage to his sort of like lower, you know, lower income Midwest background. And it definitely has a vibe that I haven't seen in a long time. It feels very 90s, but with adult language. Like they, they, it's clearly like a, you know, it's rated TV 14. Um, I mean, the few episodes I watched, I thought it felt very refreshing, um, because we could, it didn't uh, depend on that, uh, all the Christian themes that you usually see in a lot so of So that's shows. interesting because Kim Fields, I know from obviously Facts of Life, and um, of course Living, Living Single, Single. Yeah. she was also on Good Times with Which, Janet Jackson. Because and, her mother. And her, well, and her mother was on Good Times as Janet Penny's uh, mom. Which but, kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So I'm very familiar with Kim Fields. And have always liked her work, but then she did one season of Real Housewives of Atlanta. And oh, that, I didn't know that. And that really turned me off because she was very... Uh, See, the, I, I ignore all of those. I don't want to equate Christianity with being, you know, uh, narrow-minded, and, and that's not what I'm doing right now. <laughs> but she seemed very, like... I Looking back, I think the problem with her on that show and why she seems so stiff is that she is a legitimate star who did this reality show with people who are just hungry for attention. And yeah. I think that she probably felt like it was beneath her and probably during filming felt like it was a poor decision. So her attitude was very negative and then she like she had a lot of religious talk. So I only bring that up to say that I did not picture her taking a role where she sexualized and uses adult language. Certainly uh, not... I, I certainly wouldn't have thought that she would play a character that was so gay friendly, um, knowing that Wanda Sykes, the creator, obviously, right, right, right. Um, I, I wouldn't expect less, but it was very refreshing to see, um, her in this role and seem so free. Um, like I mentioned, there is a gay character, it's her eldest son and, um, they so, sort of tease the audience for like four episodes or three episodes mm-hmm. for him to finally come out to his parents. And she's very loving. She actually tells him he's gay before he tells her mm-hmm. and tells him that she loves him and she's proud of him. And and then the dad, Mike Epps, he has to tell. And I thought that scene was really good because I think, and I heard them talk about it in an interview that, you know, with homosexuality in the black American community and there being a lot of perceived homophobia. I think I think my experience has been that yes, there's conflict when it comes to religion and Christianity, but I think a lot of people do accept it, but it's kind of like in their own way. Well, so like, it's kind of like this is our business, no one else's. Well, kind of like listening to Big Frida in that uh podcast about who's very devoted to the church and when she was asked if there was ever any problems, she said absolutely not. <laughs> Right, which is, which is interesting, and 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 I think uh, as being a black person and being around black people, especially when I was younger, um, I I I think a lot of it is like 
I'm not making excuses for anything, but I do think that it's a cultural thing and there are some nuances that I think are often lost because everything is so black or white. Like, you know, you have to accept me this way with this language mm -hmm. or you're problematic, you're canceled. And I think that homosexuality is often made a joke, but then people use humor as a way to work through uncomfortable topics mm -hmm. and things that they just haven't processed. And I think the way Mike Epps character handles his son coming out, I thought was, um, were very, very relatable and nice. And then in the end, he does admit to his wife separately that he, he, he doesn't know how to handle it, that, you know, he told his son what he knew his son needed to hear, but he's like, I don't know that I'm okay with it. That's mm -hmm. not what I envisioned for my child. And now it's like, he just drops this bomb on me. But anyway, um, I really like the show. I'm, Which is the, like the importance of seeing, you know, what good parenting should look like. Sure. Okay, moving on. But, well, I mean, that uh, comment you made in there, um, talking about how equating Christianity with narrow-mindedness, uh, you know, like I, that is a problem that I've personally uh, dealt with, uh, conveying that those those thoughts and ideas because of how I grew up and because of my own um, uh, difficulty with people that uh, you know use certain language and claim to uh, adhere hew close to a certain religion. But you know, I was just reminded of uh, Tammy Faye Baker. You know, there's this upcoming Jessica Chastain film where she plays her. Uh, and you know, if you, if you, if even if you revisit the documentary about her from 2007 that RuPaul narrated, you know, like, I think she's a really good example of what that's supposed to look like. Um, just a loving, kind person, um, which is, who is not narrow-minded at all and, you know, certainly had her own demons, but, um, yeah, to, to me, like, she's the embodiment of what... That should look like. Yeah, the eyes of Tammy Faye is from two thousand, but um. Oh, that's two thousand. Yeah. she died in two thousand seven. That's yeah, because when you said it, I'm like, no, I remember that. Like, I was, you know. That's probably the like, year I watched it. Because yeah. in two thousand, I would have, I would have been too young. Not to go too long on this particular topic, but I do think people like her. I just think like if you are, you know, we can all have varying views, but if we come from a place of love and respect and that, that really is the best way to connect with people. Which is my, what my problem with cancel culture is as well. Like we, you know, everything's context. Every scenario needs to be dealt with across the board and, and taking into mind uh, perspectives, but which is kind of the main topic. That's our today. main topic. Or that's adjacent. Yeah. So we'll save that. <clears throat> um, so you have something about Steve McQueen? Oh, um, you know, as in new projects I'm excited about, uh, y'all know Steve McQueen, uh, he has... <laughs> y'all know Gamilla. <laughs> he... I feel like we say that and people don't always know the reference. No. So what is the reference? The reference is to that television film, Betty and Coretta. Starring, starring Mary J. Mary... Blige and Angela Bassett. Yes, as... Uh, Betty Shabazz. Betty Shabazz. And, uh, and Coretta Scott and King. Coretta Scott King. And, and <laughs> there's a scene where... Um, uh, Betty Shabazz, Mary J. Blige's character has a whole bunch of kids. She actually had a lot of kids with Malcolm X, and they're all—they're all—all all of their names start with G. Uh, I don't know if that's the thing. Uh, I don't think it's that. There's a scene where Coretta comes over. Yeah, and she's like introducing her kids, and then she goes, "And y'all know Gamilla." Yeah, Mary J. Blige's <laughs> or, uh, yeah, she's naming off all her children, and then she points to the one like y'all know Gamilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we say that all the time. People look at it like. Um, <laughs> 
Steve McQueen, who has just come off his five-part small acts anthology, uh, which you watched none of, uh, but at least three of those, I think, were pretty excellent pieces of filmmaking. Uh, you did see His Widows. Okay. Uh, you've not seen 12 Years a Slave. No. I know you watched Hunger with me. I don't recall. Oh, with David Michael, Bowie? Michael Fassbender. Oh. Where he's in prison. Doesn't David Bowie have a movie called Hunger? The Hunger. Oh, that's a vampire Hunger. film. Love that film. Well, let's stay on track. Captain Deneuve. Um, uh, anyway, he's announced a new project. It's a um, documentary called Uprising. Uh, it's basically about three important events all taking place in the year 1981 um, that uh, relate to race relations in England. So not a, a whole lot... Not not a very far removed from kind of what Small Axe was as well. But uh, obviously very excited to hear that. All right. So I think it was last Sunday. We, like I was, I was actually watching some YouTube videos and I was uh, targeted with ads for a Hulu documentary called Kid 90. Mm -hmm. Like I saw like four ads for it in like an hour. So I watched the trailer and I was intrigued. So it's basically a documentary about Soleil Moon Fry, mm -hmm. but it revolves around... So Soleil Moon Fry played Punky Brewster in the 80s sitcom. Which I never watched. Which I think I watched every episode. Okay. She plays an orphan who's adopted by an older man and um, just her life getting on with him and making friends. But she... And it was supremely popular. Mm -hmm. Soleil Moon Fry, from the age of like... 10 until like 17, 8, well, like 19, uh, video recorded everything mm -hmm. and saved all of her voice messages because back then they were on cassette tapes and uh, saved all of her letters and photographs and decided to bring them out of the archives and make a documentary. And it was pretty fascinating, I think, for someone, because she and I, I think, are the same age. So I very much related to like a lot of the references. She has a lot of very famous friends from back mm -hmm. in the day. You know, we have everyone from like Stephen Dorff to Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Paul, Mark Wahlberg, Mark Paul Gosler. Um, some so uh, David Arquette. David Ar a lot of them. Yeah, a, a lot of people. But I think um, what were some things that stood out to you, <sighs> not really knowing who she is. Um. I, I think that I felt very envious of, well, you know, of what a fabulous adolescence that must have been. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she wasn't without her certain drama and, and you know, because it was touching to hear and, and troubling always to hear how women are treated as they uh, develop <laughs> into women. Uh, but You're referring to Soleil Moon Fry had, I think, like, E-sized breast yes. and had to get... And how everybody treated her. And how she was treated. Yes. So she ended up getting a breast reduction at like 14 or 15. Right. You Which, know. you know, any woman having to change her body to... Um, feel comfortable. To feel comfortable because of how people act. You know, it's... Troubling. Uh, among many things. Uh, anyhow, obviously very envious, but uh, it also made me very happy to have had the experience that I did as, as a teenager before social media uh, and able to kind of explore myself and my sexuality without this magnifying glass. Yeah. And obviously not as a celebrity, but with a ma the magnifying glass being my peers, uh, being people that uh, would be able to kind of better keep track of what I was doing with myself. Yeah. Um, 
and it, it, it just, it kind of made me miss um, a lot of the well-meaning angst and um, products that came out of the 90s. So things that I found interesting about the documentary, um, one, she, she was trying to get on uh, Mark Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. Two, she kind of was in a relationship. So the I think the weakest part of the documentary is she doesn't she she talks about how she it's really about friendship and not like following through and she talks about how she she was surprised looking back at all of the footage uh, to understand how much she cared about people and how much people cared about her. Which I really related to because I think as a 42-year-old with very few friends, I often feel so like unlikable and alone. Obviously, I have you and I have my family but and your family. But I think I do feel very alone. But then it's like I'm sure if I had record of the people I used to interact with and if we would have written letters and sent voicemails and I, mm-hmm. if I would have recorded things... I'm sure I'd feel very different, like, or differently, like, the, that people did like me. You, and you have tangible evidence. I have yeah. tangible evidence that I can't refute, so maybe I wouldn't go through the world now feeling, like, unwanted. So I think that's why I don't have a lot of friends now, because I just don't feel like people like me, and I don't know how to like people, but I'm sure there was a time. Well, I don't think you're alone in that either. It's, no. It's, it, you know, we're, all, we're all sold this fantasy about how life is supposed to look on every single front, and you know, in in most cases, it never ever looks like what has been scripted for us. Um, but I, I think it's a double edged sword as well. You know, because it made me sad to think of um, younger millennials and what Generation Z is that? What's after us? I don't. I don't even know what I am. Am uh, I a millennial? Technically, no. I think. Oh. Didn't it start? Am I a boomer? No. Didn't it start? You're not a boomer. You're yeah. Gen X. Oh. I think millennials started in '81. Not that it fucking matters. I don't ever um, think about it, so I don't know. But uh, just, you know, say like a teenager today in 30 years from now trying to uh, kind of have these transcripts of their lives, you know, there, it's going to be a lot of selfies on their Instagram. I, like, I don't know what's going to be available for them to be able to have that same sense of... Um, I'm Gen X, you're Gen Y. And Gen Y is millennial? Yes. <laughs> oh, but we're spending a lot of time on Kid 90, but I did want to get to a few things. So she um, she wanted to get on Mark Wahlberg. She had a relationship, kind of, with Danny Boy from the band House of Pain. That's right. Mm-hmm. But I think probably the biggest bombshell from the documentary is that she had a romantic relationship with Charlie Sheen, mm-hmm. who is, like, more than 10 years older but than she, her. But she talked about somebody... Um going too far with like inserting themselves oh she talks about being sexually assaulted but she didn't say who she didn't say who but then she says she lost her virginity to charlie sheen yeah Um, so it's it's vague and she's not so that's the weakest part of the i think the documentary is that she leaves out a lot a lot of connecting dots also she talks about being alone and not like feeling like so many years were lost not thinking about these people but she doesn't once mention that she got married around the time that she stopped interacting and had children and has had a very you know long life since then, so that's missing. But the other thing is that she shows that there were eight people who she had met around like her teenage years and in college who all ended up dying or committing suicide. Mm-hmm. So she talks about how important. 
it is to like reach out to friends and check in on them. I think what I meant by double-edged sword too is if you had the opportunity to mine through these materials and realize how ambivalent and oblivious you were and selfish. Sure. And I don't mean you as, I mean all of us, uh, just as the nature of being that age. Um, And I think, I don't know. It, It depends on your personality. Well, let's keep this rolling. So what is mainstream? Oh, well, it was a film we were supposed to review, but the the public nobody would. Uh, it wasn't released for press to review, um, so I took it upon myself to watch it. But mainstream is the sophomore film from Gia Coppola, who, as if you hadn't guessed it by the last name, is related to that whole entire clan. Um, her first film was Palo Alto. Uh, Palo Alto, which is uh, how Siri says it to me, uh, which I thought was kind of a. A cesspool of nepotism kind of film, which I think based on short stories James Franco wrote. That was back in 2013. Uh, so she has a new film, Mainstream. It premiered in a sidebar, Venice, last year, um, to terrible, terrible reviews, which I think is why uh, anytime publicists don't let kind of smaller films uh, be reviewed by the press, it's a, bad, a really bad sign. Uh, usually it's damage control. And I can see why. There, there were ideas I liked to about it but uh it, it's basically also the same kind of she likes these people that are children of famous people so maya hawks is the star she's this woman in hollywood this young woman who wants to make it big on youtube and can't figure out how and she meets this weirdo played by andrew garfield and it basically turns into the millennial version of a face in the crowd Okay. So that's it. I, I think that you and I, if we had watched together and reviewed it, it would have been quite an interesting review. Um, and to discuss kind of what exactly are the problems with it, uh, in that it, it, it is a reflection of the problematic kind of desires that people have to now be stars uh, on social media, but also from the for, told from a, a vantage point from really privileged cynical viewpoint that I, th- I think is the major turnoff of it hmm okay quick change quick change you went to bed uh i the the grandfather i didn't like growing up liked to tape a lot of things on vhs and i remember him taping this one uh but it starts and you know what he, he loved um what about bob and to this day i have not seen that in probably almost 30 years because of how much that man loved the film and how annoying I thought he was. Um, but quick change, 1990 Bill Murray film that he co-directed with Howard Franklin starring Gina Davis and uh, Randy Quaid. And knowing now Sigourney Weaver's affinity for Bill Murray, I feel like she would have been the female lead, but she was pregnant with her baby uh, probably around the time this was filming. Uh, but anyway, I was very entertained. Warner Brothers Archives put it out on Blu-ray uh, for review, which I doubt that I'll get to. But uh, it was a lot of fun to revisit. I thought Bill Murray and uh, Randy and Gina are bank robbers. And uh, yeah. I have a lot of problems uh, getting out of the bank. The perfect candidate. Uh, that was a film I wish we had reviewed, but you weren't interested. Uh, Saudi Arabian film from uh, Haifa Al-Mansur, competed in Venice in 2019. Uh, basically about a young uh, a young woman who's a doctor in Saudi Arabia, which even that is seems fucking unheard of, and just all the shit she has to put up with. And all she wants to do is so she can... 
her career can flourish and she can go to a different hospital is the current hospital she's working at doesn't even have a road paved for patients to get there. So she decides to run for a uh, local uh, uh, post uh, and just the difficulties with, as the title suggests, her being the right candidate because of how uh, men treat women there. All right. So we watched the third episode of Drag Race Down Under. Yes, that was today. Yeah. Uh, still not really... Uh, I honestly don't even remember, and I just watched it this morning. Uh, uh, Coco Jumbo? Coco Jumbo and Electra Shock were in the bottom two. I don't even recall the challenge. Oh, they did, they did group songs. I had a big problem, actually, with this oh. week's episode. Because the... The scriptedness of it is getting really ragged. I, I, I don't know if in two or three episodes we're going to see the star power of Electra Shock ascend or plummet or, or whatever story they're painting for her. But the feedback she got as being uh, like, a sh- like being the Beyonce of her group, it's like, you know, fuck this, these stupid ass. Because if she would have faded into the background, they would have said, like, you're stupid. This is a competition reality mm-hmm. show. You need to make sure the spotlight is on you. And then she does that, and it's like, oh, well, you're taking away from your team members as the team captain. It's like, okay. Yeah, I agree. I think. I, I, the, the weirdness that it's it kind of happened with Tia Coffee a bit too on UK season two about this notion of like the basic, the basic girl and how well it like the creation. It's, it's a preemptive creation of an underdog. Uh, well, I really don't like the rhetoric that RuPaul's adopted in the past, you know, you know, like, well, you know, the famous scene from season two of UK where she said she doesn't want to see any fucking H&M. And mm-hmm. this season she said it a few times that she wants to see the drag elevated. And it's like, as far as we know, these queens aren't being paid for their, like, to make their costumes. Like, they, I don't know. I just think it's so weird that, like, we're looking for talent, I thought. Not, like, who can afford the nicest, like, most expensive gowns. Well, because if you look back at the early seasons of this show, RuPaul didn't look good. You know, the... <sighs> or, too bad this is not video, because then I put up that uh, clip from uh, Project Runway where right. he looked like a crackhead. But, but it, it takes a lot of money. And it's the, like, even the finale of the season of the U.S. 13? Is it 13? 12. The most recent one? Yeah. 13. Like, the dresses... Even listening to Trixie and Kati talk about, like, uh, the amount amount of money. It's depressing. I want to be entertained. I don't need you to wear, like, a custom gown that you can't really move in that has, like, three tearaway reveals. And and that was my problem with Got Mick as well. Like, you have access to all this money and, like, oh, you can look like Mugler and blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not what drives Are you funny? Can you dance? Can you sing? Like, that's, that's what I want. Right. I don't need you to come in looking like um, like a mannequin. But anyway, um, Coco Jumbo was sent home. Electroshock is he, uh, here to live another day. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, what is There Is No Evil? Uh, that, that is another shout out to a film that opened uh, this week theatrically and uh, streaming. Uh, Mohamed Rasulov won the Golden Bear at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival, another film I wish we had had time for, but unfortunately we did not, because uh, the Golden Bear winner I think is a major distinction. Uh, I like this film. It's a it's basically a quartet 
uh, of films uh, having to do with the death penalty in Iran, uh, but definitely worth a watch. And, uh, oh, you finally watched the Jessica Lange King Kong. Yes, uh, from the director of, uh, what, how do you say, John Gurmillan? Uh, the guy that directed... Gamilla. Uh, not Gamilla, <laughs> Gurmilla. He directed The Towering Inferno, which I also watched for the first time recently, and uh, Shaft in Africa, which we reviewed the Blu-ray of. That's the one where you see Richard yes. Roundtree. Where you see Richard Roundtree's penis. Penis, like in a very uncomfortable way. Uh, uh, yeah, that I hadn't. And you know, I had as a as a child, as a adolescent, I had my Jessica Lange phase. Uh, and some I never had seen King Kong. Uh, it. Uh, uh, what she, is she had the her her because her character name is Dwan. And that has to be the most annoying, one of the most annoying names I've ever heard. And for, well, not for some reason. I get up very early, so I usually watch a movie in the morning, but it's something that I just have in the background. And a few weeks ago, I did watch this King Kong. And the only thing I remember from it is how beautiful she looks. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But her acting is not great. <laughs> so, strangely, she won a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer. But I think the reviews were ragged because she went away and didn't. I think she didn't do another film till 1979's um, All That Jazz, um, which you've also seen. Infant Terrible? Infant Terrible. Another shout out to a film that it, it's a biopic on Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Uh, it had the Cannes 2020 label, I believe. Uh, I saw it around the time of Venice. Oh, it, you know what? No, that's scratch that. It played as sidebar at Venice, uh, but I saw a screener of it then and really liked it. And I still have plan. I still am planning on rewatching it to review it. But it, I really liked it. I thought it captured Fassbinder's attitudes and uh, as well. And if you're a fan of that filmmaker, definitely worth a watch. Switchblade Sisters. Uh, you caught the tail end of it. Uh, Arrow Video put that out on Blu-ray. It's a favorite of Quentin Tarantino's. He resurrected it with a big to-do in 1996. Uh, Marlene Clark, of course, as Muff, uh, <clears throat> is my favorite, and I'm glad to see it because of her. Uh, definitely, like, highly notable trash. Got it. Okay, so moving on, someone... Which, in a better world, you would have watched it with me and we would have had the best conversation about Switchblade Sisters, but moving on. Well, we have other conversations, so that's nice. Okay. Um... So someone emailed us regarding last week's podcast, um, referencing, like, the title of the podcast is How Hollywood Made Us Gay, and this person said that she was surprised we didn't mention E. Lynn Harris. So, and she told, a, uh, you know, shared a personal story about um, his work, and I will admit I had no idea who E. Lynn Harris was, but I was compelled to look him up. And, um, and, I, and I have never read uh, anything by Elon Harris. So I read a few things about him, watched a few interviews and like a short little like news, uh, like not expose, but like a short news piece about him as a, an author. And I was just so moved. I, so he was born in 1955 and died at the age of 54 in 2009 from complications from heart disease is what I read. But it's so unfortunate because I, 
just watching him speak and hearing his story, I really, really, really felt like he would be someone who I would have connected with. Not that that would ever, that man would have ever been my friend, but you know, when you watch people and think like, ugh, mm -hmm. like I really connect with that person. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just to give a quick shout out to this man, he, so he started off as a, like a computer salesperson, like working for IBM and companies like that, when he decided to self-publish his first manuscript. And he never saw himself as a writer. However, he, during the AIDS crisis and with having so many friends die, he would write his friends long letters just to show them that they were being thought of. And he got feedback from a couple people saying like how wonderful his writing was and that he should like, and to promise them that he would pursue writing once they pass. So he kept that promise and wrote a manuscript and it was turned down by every publishing house, like categorically, mm -hmm. firmly, crisply, quickly told no. So he self-published and sold his books out of the trunk of his car and he targeted, which could be another entire, uh, an entirely uh, separate conversation about the phenomenon of gay erotic literature and gay love romance novels being consumed primarily by women. Mm -hmm. And that's a phenomenon that persists. But somehow he knew that his work, uh, which was gay-themed, his first novel um, is called Invisible Life. And he's known for being... Uh, writing about men, like black men who are on the DL. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, somehow he knew that his subject matter and his writing style would appeal to women, women of color. So he would go to like black beauty shops and like black like business expos targeted towards women and he would sell his wares and he got picked up by a publishing house and became He's considered one of the most successful, not only black, but gay authors during his era. And he had 10 consecutive um, books placed on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. So he's very accomplished. Um, I have not read any of the books. I am certainly going to read them. I think I'm going to start with the first one. But, um, oh, but the ones I, was, I really think... Um... Not a Day Goes By and Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South and Oral History sounds... They all sound... Uh, I mean, they all sound good. Right. I, I think I will go chronologically because I watched several interviews of him and I watched him do a book reading and I just really loved his energy. Mm -hmm. He also... Um, he taught creative writing in African American literature in at, at the University of Arkansas. Um, and then maintained a home in Atlanta as well. And he just seems like, I just, I just really connected with him. He just feels like all kinds of bl gay black excellence. And I um, am excited to read. And everyone knows I don't read, so I'm very uh, inspired to want to read his stuff. But moving on to today's topic with, let's remind myself of the time, 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, today's uh, topic, <clears throat> I'm trying to keep these at an hour or less. Mm -hmm. FYI. So you came up with a topic that I thought was really good. So why don't you share? Uh, censorship. Censor yeah, censorship. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's near and dear to my heart in many ways. Freedom of speech. Do you feel censored? 
Yes, of course. Oh. As, a, as a gay man in this country, yes. Oh, okay. Well, here we go. But, uh, you know, and I'm sure... Like, my thesis project was about Suddenly Last Summer, which, of course, was Tennessee Williams' play in the film, 1959. Censorship, of course, was full swing. Uh, and I think censorship is uh, important and, and touchy because... In the let's say the realm of cinema, the reflections of cinema define the uh, mores and attitudes of the time. Um, well, let me let me um, provide a little structure for this really quickly. So, prior, so what is the? It was in the fifties where there was like decency, and you know this stuff. So help me. Well, what what was it when all of a sudden films took a turn? Okay, so the something called the Hayes Code. Hayes Code. That's was it. uh, it's basically self censorship. Uh, from Hollywood uh, that they designed uh, about what could be depicted on screen, etc. But it wasn't really enforced. It it was created in 1930. It wasn't really enforced until 1934 uh, when cultural attitudes began to shift. So does that mean prior to 1930, people were just putting anything out? Not just anything, but that's what... Was there film before 1930? Girl. Oh. Silent films. Right? Jazz Singer was 1929. That's the first talkie. talkie. Okay. Um, The period of... uh, That this is called is pre-code. Even though there was a code, it's called pre-code. So think of like the Barbara Stanham film I've been trying to get you to watch for since I've known you. um, Babyface, which is just such a fucking amazing movie. If you haven't seen Babyface from 1933, all of Barbara Stanwyck's pre-code films, Night Nurse... Ladies, they talk about, you know, there, there were just things on screen and kind of a, a reflection of reality. But what I was trying to say before you interrupted me uh, was that uh, what we allow to be depicted on screen for mass consumption uh, also dictates how people believe, what kind of people exist. That's why there are so many people that, like, oh, gay people, queer people are a, a weird, strange thing. Like, we aren't everywhere you go. Uh, because there were no depictions of us, and the ones that were were uh, extremely negative, which see the cellul- uh, i.e. the celluloid closet. Okay, what I was trying to get to is the Hayes Code, you said wasn't really enforced until 1934, and that's when we see in film that there was more strict um, yes, and they, gu- guidance on subject matter and language. and they, then Based on a series of topics. Right. And at the same time, there was also the Catholic Legion of Decency. Okay. And they... It, obviously not as official, but if your film did not have the Legion of Decency stamp on it, then forget people going to see it at the theater. And then now we have the MPAA. The MPA. So the dismantling of the code happened piecemeal, right? Homosexuality, for instance. You couldn't say the word homosexual on screen legally until 1961 because that was the year that it was finally taken out uh, of the code in uh, Preminger's Advice and Consent and Weiler's The Children's Hour with Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine uh, were the first films uh, to uh, have the word said. So Suddenly Last Summer is such an interesting uh, film to me because this Elizabeth Taylor's talking about procuring men for her gay cousin, and, but nobody... You can't say it out loud. And the weird energies that surround <laughs> fucking grown-ass adults not being able to say uh, truth. Um, anyway, what, what would... Oh, so the last film... Foul language was the last thing to go. 
in the Hays Code. And the film that toppled that was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Okay. And so then this the system, uh, the MPAA system, was adopted, which in turn is a form of censorship. Um, uh, see Kirby Dick's documentary, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, for a much better rundown than what I'm saying right now. But how uh, in this country we... Uh, because film is all about... It, it's an art form, but it's all about box office profit. So it's a business. So if you stamp something with an NCAA rating simply because it has gay people making love and giving each other pleasure, that means that um, theaters aren't going to play it uh, and at the time, you know, at the time this documentary was made, like places like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video refused to rent NC-17 rated films. Um, obviously, the nature of uh, how film is distributed and consumed ha has changed now, but it's still a bit of a kiss of death uh, to have an NC-17 rating. Uh, for And how we censor things based on violence versus sexuality in this country. Okay. So it's 2021. Uh -huh. There are many, many platforms. Mm -hmm. So the idea of being censored and having, like, let's say, an NC-17 rating doesn't necessarily mean the same that it did even 20 years ago because there are so many ways to acquire content. So then when we talk about censorship, okay, so the, right well, now... The topic was uh, right. spurred be it by Donald Glover's comments this week about how film has become dull because people are too afraid to be daring. Yes. So that's what we were going to talk about. Um, yeah. So, I mean... It, let... To me, that is really... It, it, our uh, social censorship, while necessary on some fronts, has also created uh, a new kind of censorship that isn't far removed from the self-censorship of the Hays Code. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there is such a thing as being too like say Dietrich the character in Dietrich the character in Army of the Dead this week who uh, tells the, the film's only Japanese character that he can't say something that's a, basically a Japanese slur joke like okay. that's the level of cancel culture we're talking about here well I mean this conversation could be hours long but I think that's true but I think since we only have you know 15 minutes left I think uh, <laughs> So, just for myself, I haven't felt like I've had a voice really ever, because what platform did I have to speak on anything, and I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't involved in, like, student body, council, you know, like, I've, I've never felt like I had a platform, so... It's interesting now that we do the YouTube videos and we get commentary and oftentimes people will say, like, you can't say that. You shouldn't say that. I didn't like that you said that. Mm -hmm. And it's such an interesting thing. And I think what Donald Glover said was interesting because I almost feel like, oh, so you just want me to be like this watered down. And I think there's a difference between inciting hate. Yes. And being unnecessarily divisive. Versus like, isn't it important for, I want to know people's real thoughts. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to provide me with, you know, I had a, a meeting, a, a work-related meeting, uh, or uh, I met with a potential vendor last week, and I got the sense that this person was very conservative, mm -hmm. like very conservative, and 
was clearly like not super comfortable with my presence and then someone mentioned like oh your husband and then he visibly sort of seemed like he didn't know how to connect with me and I thought I thought that I don't I want to be respected and I think there are there's a place and time for everything and it's just business I don't need the person making my venti latte with coconut milk and two honey packets to be you know to stand for everything I stand for mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. we can have opposing views and you can provide me with the service I'm paying for so I think there are levels right and I, I I just find it so interesting that people feel very comfortable to tell other people like you can express your honest opinion because don't you want to know what I honestly think so that you can evaluate who I am as a person accurately and then make a decision? So to tell me on my YouTube videos or in a podcast I've recorded that I can't say that, I shouldn't say that, is like, so you want me to pretend to not have certain thoughts so that you feel comfortable? Or is it that you, you don't want to not feel like you can't watch a certain movie or listen to a certain person speak? So you just want them to do what you're comfortable with. And, you know, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about any of this, except to say that I find it very interesting as someone who never had a platform. And now all of a sudden I get comments on a daily basis saying that what I said was wrong. Mm -hmm. You don't like what I said. It, it, it's just like, but I'm just being me. I'm just being Miley. Like, I don't know. Well, and, and at the same time, like, also part of that criticism from people that didn't like what you said uh, spills over to me not censuring you. Right. <laughs> Which, so, I'm, that's like saying, telling Seth Rogen that he's to apologize for James Franco's actions. It's like, um... <laughs> I also think there's very little tolerance or forgiveness or an attempt to understand where people are coming from. You know, there was a film that the title I don't recall, but it was a mostly Asian cast, and I commented that two of the actors... Tiger. Tiger. Tiger Tail. Tiger Tail. And I had commented that I thought like that two of the actors, female actors, were indistinguishable, but it was because and I and I and I did say because they're acting like the like the characterizations are very flat, so they like like to me they're the same, and they both play the love interest of one character, so then I get comments like I'm racist, I think all Asian people look the same, and it's like you know can we take a step back and mm -hmm. really think like. What 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 do you think my intention was of making that statement? Or are you just really hot to like just call everyone out? Right, right. And is like, how much work are we going to get done if, you know, as a gay black person who grew up in the United States, I think that I have a really good perception of what it is to to meet people halfway. Because I think that's how I've been able to accomplish what I've been able to accomplish in my life is that I have been able to meet people halfway and try to understand where they're coming from. And yeah, sometimes that me meant that I had to be the bigger person and swallow my pride. You know, I've had to, you know, I've had to extend an olive branch to some people to get an understanding of mm -hmm. where they're coming from. And I think the net result was positive and we were able to move forward. Right. Well, and also, like I was saying, context. Context. Everything, everything has a certain context, and but censorship and cancel culture don't allow for that. Correct, and that 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 is wherein we'll cannibalize each other at this rate. Because so, you know you've been writing for a long time, 
for public consumption. Mm -hmm. So I remember, you know, you first getting like negative comments mm -hmm. or people would at you on tweets like they didn't like what you said and mm -hmm. you would be very upset because your intention was not to like inflame or offend. No, no. You were just giving your opinion and it's like these are my feelings. And there aren't there it's they're my feelings, but of course uh you I think the the purpose is you're supposed to learn. Like, okay, some sometimes the criticism I get, of course, is is correct or it's valid, uh, and and to learn from that. And sometimes I don't like I don't know how necessary or how workable it is for people to to be publicly calling out. I think you go you get a lot farther with somebody saying something in private. I think. That's not to say that some people don't deserve to be publicly shamed. Of course, yeah. But but I, but I'm just saying, like, I, I think if you have someone's interests at heart, you'll be take them aside and be like, you know what, I'm supposed to say. It. Not that I've ever fucked up to that degree, but of course, like, I've had things pointed out to me that I'm like, oh, that makes sense, or I was being insensitive, or I or I misspoke, or I misspoke. Yeah, right. I mean, I make mistakes. But the, the thing is, when you're when you're speaking authentically, you're going to make mistakes, and. Um, you have to be a, a grown person and own up to it, of course. You know, with very little time left, I think, I thought this topic was really interesting because ultimately I'm going to continue to try to learn and grow and, and, and this is not me trying to like apologize for anything I've said. I don't feel like I've said, or I don't, I don't feel bad about anything I've said. And a lot of the things I say are, you know, just my opinion and coming from my perspective and I have a purpose for why I'm saying it. My intention is specific, but I just think overall, like maybe I'm old school, but I would rather hear someone's authentic it's, it's feelings. Like, it's like that bit from Patrice O'Neill, right? About where he says like th that guy walking the dog's like, Oh, I don't know. He's racist. Yeah. It's, it's like, I don't know. Maybe like, maybe I'm just older and I just don't, like, I want to know what people really think. And I don't mind a little bit of sting to it. A little bit of, you know, just like, sure. ooh, I can tell that, you know, there's something behind what you just said. But I would like to know where you're coming from instead of you being fake. Because right. you've mastered the art of PR and, the, and, you know, someone has crafted something for you to say. And, you know, even, yeah. I mean, I can go on and on about this, but I think... And, but that, and, you know, again, critiquing film, there's a constructive way to say something. There, there's a respectful way to say you don't like something, um, it, or that you completely demean a whole entire culture by your ignorance. But the reality it. is, you don't have, you can, you can say whatever you, you want. You can, but. Uh, but you have to deal with the repercussions, but the repercussions yes. shouldn't be that unanimously we should cancel this person because we don't like it. No, as an individual, you should be allowed to say, you know what, I don't like. Joseph, I don't like the way he says things. I don't like what he says. So I'm going to choose not to consume Joseph or support and, Joseph. And that's fine. And I think where I had wanted to go kind of with this topic is in related to film, before we have to wrap up, is um, the films that have the privilege of erasing the problematic elements of them, like Ridley Scott's uh, All the Money in the World, you know, etched out Kevin Spacey and we just watched Army of the Dead where Tignataro via green screen has taken out Chris Delia yeah. and you know okay sh it's like to me it's like my feelings about plastic surgery like if you can afford to and there's something some minor tweak that you could do that would make you feel better comfortable in your space by all means you should do that uh, 
but there's people that can't afford to do that. There, the, there are film productions that can't afford to erase the problematic people out of them that these indie movies Army Hammer did right before his... Uh, it's a job. It's just like all you people who are so offended, like who work at the bank and the grocery store and the gas station, you know, it's like a lot of y'all out here judging everyone have like... You know, I'm sure if I knew your names, I could, you probably on the sex offender registry or you have, you know, people act like they're angels and they're crystal, like their waters are crystal clear. We all have things about us that we may be ashamed of or Mm -hmm. that we know other people would not appreciate. But we also like actors are working like these are their jobs and to align someone's personal um, values with their job seems really strange to me. Again, but going back to the conversation we had about reception theory, yeah, uh, there, there, we're gonna have to kind of have a reckoning eventually as a culture with the the a person a human can't be a tabula rasa. So, uh, what are you gonna allow for people to have? What 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 kind of new haze code are we gonna come up with? Well, but from a business perspective, I understand that if I'm working on a new project and I just cast someone and I'm really excited about it and then we found out this person molested a child. Has been accused of. Yeah. Or, or, or been accused of something heinous. Obviously, for business reasons, I would say I don't want to align myself with you because that's going to bring right. negative but, attention but to when my project. But when the project is done and it's, it's, it's a wrap, like, just... I, I, I don't know. Like, to me... What it speaks to is you can go back and erase somebody completely, like what George Lucas did with his Star Wars films and re-release them and cut out all the CGI, all the all the practical effects he didn't like. Like you could go back and we're gonna erase uh, Kevin Spacey out of every single movie he did and put some stock person in there. I, I, j- I just think we aren't gonna learn anything that way. It's like going back and taking out the N word from Mark Twain. Um, th- there are learning opportunities here for the rest of us to go forward because if we don't all we're learning is that you can just sweep it under the rug and that people are just going to continue to be shitty it's like no we're supposed to be learning the lessons i don't yeah i agree i think this is a very complicated issue that we could talk about forever right right and um, there are many other films i wanted to talk about the women in the window as kind of a uh, offshooting of that but here we go well you know put a pin in it and i think maybe for a later date we can revisit this topic because i did think it was a very good one that you brought up um but i think that should be it for today <laughs> i've been drinking so i'm getting a little tired um well, is there any final words you have beyond just uh, please watch our YouTube videos, Fish Jelly Film Reviews? My final words? Well, just in general. Um, a, 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 a goodbye. Power to the people. Pa- oh. <laughs> My God. What? Oh, and, well, here. Say say a few more words while I conjure up something. Hold on. What? <laughs> I, I, why are you so surprised? I feel like I said that at the last episode. You didn't I, say power to the people. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I know I've said that before. Lo- love, peace, and hair grease. No. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you looking up sayings? No, no, no. I was. I wanted to confirm because I'd be embarrassed if I messed it up. But tomorrow, Sunday, when this podcast will be mm-hmm. published, is Janet Jackson's 55th birthday. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. Happy birthday, girl. Happy birthday. We were just looking at all your auction Yeah, all of her items. auction items for Julian's. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Well, you do that movie you were supposed to do with Lionsgate back in their 2010, 11, 12? Yeah. Do it. Janet, come on. Anyway, bye. Bye. <laughs>